Thank you very much. It's a pleasure. Uh, I don't often get this opportunity to speak before a learned audience in India. Um, I want to begin by speaking on epistemology. Uh, epistemology from the Greek episteme, which means knowledge, it's in a very simple terms, it's the branch of philosophy that tries to understand how do you know you know? Uh, under, under what conditions are you justified philosophically in saying that you know something? It's not merely your opinion or it's not merely a belief, but you actually know it to be an objective truth. Under what conditions? <clears throat> I think to the great credit of the Sanskritic uh, Vedic tradition, intellectual tradition in India, <clears throat> uh, there has been a custom for centuries that if one is beginning to put forward a philosophy, uh, one begins with epistemology because whatever you claim to be true, whatever I claim to be true, we are asserting that we know something. It can be the soul, it can be physical science, it can be something about art or music. But when we claim to know something, the question arises, how are you justified in saying that it's not merely your opinion that you actually know it? So this is epistemology. <clears throat> and um, if there's a very interesting connection uh, between Aristotle, the father of sort of uh, Western logic, and uh, some statements made by Chaitanya Mahaprabhu. And so I'll begin with that. Um, <clears throat> because of course, those of us who uh, follow Bhagavad Gita or Srimad Bhagavatam, uh, we are claiming that certain things are true. So on what basis can we make that claim? Or, or on what basis, for example, how can you justify, say, a political claim that, uh, that the best government is democratic because people are equal. Now we know empirically that's just not true. In India, as elsewhere, you have very prestigious universities that admit a very tiny percentage of the applicants. So if we were actually equal, it would be open admission. So empirically, we're not equal. And yet in the modern world, uh, most countries, including India, America and most other countries choose to, con to uh, construct a political system which is based on a claim which has no empirical basis, namely that everyone's equal. So since that is not a, an accurate physical claim, it's actually a metaphysical claim. So again, how do we know that's true? If we say everyone is equal, despite all the empirical evidence, how do we know that's true? Is it just because we declare it to be true? That's not really philosophy. So all these issues are, 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 are involved in epistemology. So Aristotle made some very interesting comments um, over 2000 years ago, roughly 2,300 years ago, in which he said that if you claim something is true, to give a simple example, let's say I claim that water boils at 100 degrees Celsius. <clears throat> Not a very original claim, but let's say I say that. So someone can say, prove it. And I can say, okay, I'm putting a pot of water on the stove. 
I'm putting a thermometer in the pot and look at exactly 100 degrees Celsius, the water boiled. But of course the person can say, I don't believe that's pure water. I think that you, you might've added some type of chemical that changes the boiling temperature. Or someone could say, I don't believe that there is pure mercury in the thermometer, or I don't believe the thermometer is actually giving a true reading. So then you have to bring in water testing chemicals and mercury testing chemicals, but then someone can claim, well, I don't think those are real water testing. The point that Aristotle's making, this is not his example, it's just my example, but the point Aristotle's making is that whenever you claim that anything is true, you can be pushed into an infinite regress of proofs. And regress, of course, means going backwards. So Aristotle raised the question, how do you stop an infinite regress of proofs? And his reply was, and it's still actually solid philosophy. As I said, I will explain how Lord Chaitanya made the same claim. Aristotle said that the way you escape an infinite, being pushed into an infinite regress of proofs is that you have to make a stand and say that there is a fact in the world which is self-evident. In other words, it proves itself. As the saying goes, you can't hold a candle to the sun because the sun is a source of the best light. So a self-evident claim. Now, when Chaitanya Mahaprabhu was debating, discussing with uh, Sarvabhoma Vatacharya and also Prakashananda, he made the same claim. He said that the Vedic knowledge is swatak Pramanyam. It, it, it is evidenced by itself. It's the exact same point that Aristotle made. And uh, interestingly, in Sanskrit, uh, the verb ma uh, is a root meaning to measure. And you get words like matra. And of course, from Sanskrit matra, measurement, you get English words like metric or meter. And uh, so pramana means the, the measurement of something. So evidence, so, so the word for measuring or the measurement of something comes to mean evidence. Uh, just like Krishna, for example, says in Bhagavad Gita, tasmat shastram pramanam te karya karya vivastito. When you are trying to determine what you should do and what you should not do, that uh, your evidence the measure of these things is Shastra or authoritative books. So <clears throat> Chaitanya Mahaprabhu also said that. Now, what he said was that the, that the Veda or the sacred texts, ancient texts, are self-evidently true. Swataha, you know the word swa, one's own. So swataha from itself, pramanyam, it constitutes evidence. What does that mean? for something from itself to constitute evidence. Um, <clears throat> I would, um, I will bring up here just a little bit of philosophy of language to explain what I think that means. That <clears throat> there, there are different kinds of speech or different kinds of language. 
And there, just to give an example, there's one kind of speech. There's descriptive speech where you can say that, let's say you're walking, let, let, let's say you are uh, watching the soccer game. And uh, you say that, oh, this particular player just got a red card. So this player is now expelled from the game. Now that is descriptive speech. But let's say, for example, you are the judge or the referee on the field and you hold up a red card and say to a player, you're out of the game. That is not, that is actually what is called performative speech in the sense that in the act of saying that because you are the referee, in the act of saying it, you create the reality by saying it. Another example, for example, would another example would be a marriage ceremony. So when the when an, a legally authorized person says, "I now declare you uh, man and wife," the act of saying that creates the fact. So, so the speech creates the reality that it describes. So that's called performative speech. And now there's something similar. There's a type of speech. Um, Krishna is called, one of the Krishna's names or God is Satya Sankalpa. Satya, of course, means truth. And, and Sankalpa means, it can mean will, like, you know, what you will to be the case, <clears throat> volition. And so Krishna is called Satya Sankalpa because whatever he wills becomes a fact. So in that sense, you could say the Bhagavad Gita is a text composed of performative speech or the Satya Sankalpa Vakya in the sense that when Krishna says, for example, that everything comes from me, not that his words are creating the reality because it exists before Krishna says it, that everything is emanating from Krishna. But when Krishna says it, a person that hears those words or reads those words or utters those words in a proper state of consciousness, the words themselves reveal the truth of what the words are saying. So the words are not simply describing something or claiming something they are actually revealing its revelatory speech so that by hearing it, you actually see that it's a fact. And that's, I believe, among other things, what Lord Chaitanya meant when he said that the sacred, the sacred texts are swataha pramanyam. Now, someone could say, I don't believe that, or that's just your opinion, or, you know, or to use sort of postmodern gibberish, uh, they could say, well, that's your truth as if there is such a thing as, you know, personal. I mean, we each have our own psychological truth. In other words, you, uh, as a conscious being, have privileged understanding of, of, of the activities and contents of your mind. But the extent to which the contents of your mind extend to reality, to the world outside your mind, is a very different case. So to say someone, like as the people say nowadays, well, that's your truth. Actually, the only truth which we can have at our own will is psychological, not ontological. In other words, we can will to think something, but we cannot will. For example, you can will to think that right now you are flying in a spaceship uh, 
toward Jupiter. But the fact that you will that, actually you're not in a spaceship flying to Jupiter. So anyway, if someone challenges this and say, okay, Chaitanya Mahaprabhu said that the Veda is uh, self-evident. It, 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 re it reveals the truth of its words. Someone can say, well, how can you prove that? Or how can we accept that as an objective truth? And so um, going back to Aristotle for a moment and sort of completing what he's really getting at, and I think it applies also in our case, that if you are escaping an infinite regress of proofs and you declare that something is self-evidently true within your knowledge system, that claim or that what you claim to be a self-evident truth, it becomes the epistemic foundation of your knowledge system. Let me give you a simple example to explain what I mean. Let's say someone is an empiric scientist. Ramesh, I think uh, if I heard correctly, you have something to do with science. So, <laughs> so to give an example um, of a leap of faith that must be taken by all empirical scientists, a leap of faith, something which they can never, simply by the rules of logic, they can never explain within their own system. And that is the belief or the assumption that there is a real physical world outside our minds. Because Descartes, Descartes in the 1600s, he was a brilliant scientist actually, mathematician and uh, philosopher, real Renaissance man. He posed in, I, I think in his meditations, he posed the, the logical possibility. A logical possibility means that if you say it, it doesn't contradict itself. For example, uh, a square circle is not a logical possibility because if you know the meaning of the English word square and the word circle, the words a square circle actually don't mean anything. It, it's, it's, a, it's a phrase that has no meaning because, because it's logically impossible because simply definitionally. So now if we say that, um, if we say that it's possible, especially with our present knowledge of neurology and, and, and just the, you know, the possibilities of, of technology, for example, when you go to movies, a lot of what you're seeing is just digital. It's not really there, it can be a city. It can be earth blowing up. It can be, you know, it can be all kinds of things. It's not really there. It's, and it was never really there. It's just all digitally created. So, um, so therefore, it's not logically impossible. It's not like saying a square circle. It's not logically impossible that you, for example, are right now a brain in a laboratory and there is no India, there is no America, there is no solar system. You're just a brain in a laboratory and you were given all these memories. They were implanted in your mind or, or the so-called knowledge. None of this really exists. Now, I'm not gonna go with that idea personally for my life, but it's not logically impossible. 
So if you do empirical science, you have to make that leap and say, well, I am willing to dedicate my life to a profession in which I assume that there's a real physical world outside my mind. So why can you not empirically prove there is? Well, for obvious reasons, I mean, in terms of logic, because it would immediately entrap you in circular reasoning. And uh, I'll explain very briefly what I mean by that. <clears throat> the the uh, typical sort of syllogism or the typical logical example that you're always given is that let's say all human beings are mortal and uh, Socrates is a human being, therefore Socrates is mortal. And so if I say that uh, all human beings are mortal, and let's say I actually know that to be the case, and, and I know that Socrates is a human being, then it just logically follows. So, so the logic goes sort of in a linear way from, from number one to number two to the conclusion. But let's say, for example, I'm trying to prove that there's a real physical world outside my mind. And so, for example, hold up this pen. It's a typical cheap pen they give you for free when you go to different companies. Anyway, so let's say I hold up this pen and I say, look, of course there's a real physical world because I'm holding a pen here. And this is a real physical pen outside of my mind. Here's the problem. This is a real physical pen only if there's a real physical world. So what I'm trying to prove is there's a real physical world. But the evidence I give for it depends on the conclusion of the argument. The premises of an argument logically are supposed to lead to the argument and not depend on them. And not depend on them. So my premise that this is a real pen depends on the conclusion there's a, there's a real physical world. The conclusion there's a real physical world depends on the premise that this is a real pen or there can be a real pen. And so therefore the argument is going around in a circle. Rather than premises leading to a conclusion, it's just going around in a circle with um, mutual dependence between the premises and the conclusion. So this is called circular reasoning. It's considered a logical fallacy. It's an invalid form of argumentation. And therefore it can never be possible by logic. It can never be possible that uh, you can empirically prove that there's a real empirical world. Now, there are other ways you'd have to you'd have to assert it metaphysically. Just to give one more example, <clears throat> I hope this is not TMI, too much information, but I think it's important for those who are trying to understand, say, Bhagavad Gita, to understand sort of the basics of this philosophy. There was a movement about 100 years ago, a little over 100 years ago, that began in Vienna, Austria. In German, it was called the Wienkreis, the Vienna Circle. And it was a group of philosophers, very prominent philosophers at the time, who argued that the ultimate um, judge, the ultimate gatekeeper of objectivity is empirical science. 
so that they said, look, philosophy has been going on for thousands of years. We never get anywhere. We never agree. It just goes around circles. Whereas in science, they're really making progress. You know, we can say objectively that science is getting more and more powerful. Science understands more and more. So they were thinking, therefore, philosophy must be subordinated to science. So that if one makes a philosophical claim, it can only be accepted as meaningful if it can be empirically verified. And this was called logical positivism. And actually, some people still believe this, although it was rejected as philosophical nonsense by atheist academic philosophers well over 60 years ago. So why, why did atheist philosophers reject logical positivism as bad philosophy? Um, because the basic claim of logical positivism, if it's true, it's not true. And the statement which, if it's true, it's not true, is just nonsense. It's just babbling. So why is logical positivism, positivism, why is it untrue if it's true? Because the statement that we should only accept as objectively true claims that are empirically verified, the problem, as I just explained, is you cannot empirically verify that claim. There's no way to empirically verify that only empirically verified claims are true. Because that statement is actually not, it's actually metaphysical. It, it's, it's sort of a meta-epistemological claim, setting the boundaries for objective knowledge. And so if the statement is true, since the statement itself doesn't fall within the scope of empirically verifiable statements, if it's true, it's not true. So now let's go back to the Bhagavad Gita, for example, Krishna's statements in the Bhagavad Gita. How, how can we, or why do we claim that the statements are true? Obviously, we're not talking about empirical verification because Krishna is basically giving metaphysical claims, which are actually higher than physical claims. And for example, just to give that one example I've already given in India, uh, there is, you know, well, I think when you talk about any of these modern countries like America, you can say theoretically democracy. But anyway, there, there's, a, there's a democracy. So empirically, we're not equal. Metaphysically, in terms of our dignity as living beings, in terms of our right to justice, those are all metaphysical claims. None of that has anything to do with empiricism. You can't like justice. There's no, there's, there's no empirical object called justice that you can detect in the universe. So if you say that it's a value, it's called axiology and philosophy. So if you say that, let's say justice under the law is something that is important, but it's not an empirical item. It's not an empirical object. You're claiming that, so if you believe in equality, if you believe in justice, if you believe in freedom, if you believe that parents should protect their children, not kill them, if you believe these things, what you're committing yourself to, epistemologically, you are committing yourself to the view that there are non-empirical, non-physical things that actually exist in the universe. They actually, they, are, they objectively exist in the universe. So if you believe there really is such a thing as justice, 
as equality, and so on, you are committing yourself to a bi-dimensional universe, which I think people should take. You know, there are a lot of consequences of that. But let's look at Krishna consciousness, as we call it. Um, we claim, just as uh, empirical scientists claim, that we have a self-evident experience of reality, something that proves itself. Now, that's what scientists are doing. We're doing the same thing epistemologically. It's structurally, it's the same. We're saying there's a self-evident truth and we can build on that self-evident truth. Now, it's a fact that, I'll give you another kind of really bad argument given sometimes by atheists and materialists. Uh, atheism is actually not good philosophy. I mean, I'm, I don't mean to say it's impious. I mean, it's just bad philosophy. Because if there's no God, basically there's no one that knows everything. And if no one knows everything, no one knows if there's a God. Agnosticism is not really philosophy. It's just a position someone takes. Atheism itself is just, it's just bad philosophy. So um, sometimes, for example, it's often said, well, and this is true, most of the human beings, almost all the human beings, a very, very strong majority of all the human beings that ever lived on this planet believed there was some type of God or gods or goddesses or some type of divine existence beyond the empirical realm. Now, the standard answer will be, well, that doesn't prove anything. Or does it? Because if we say that, let's say this massive majoritarian human testimony as to the reality of metaphysical objects like gods, goddesses, a supreme God, or even just things like justice, if that doesn't prove anything, or it's just a trivial fact, what that means is someone who says that that is not epistemologically relevant or significant, they are committing themselves to a form of radical skepticism in which that person is claiming that um, there is little or no value in human testimony. Now, if there's little or no value in human testimony, what about the testimony of scientists who perform experiments and say, and then write papers in which they're basically giving witness, I did this experiment, I got this result. But if human testimony is trivial, why isn't that human testimony trivial? And you can say, well, that human testimony is not trivial because we have rigorous systems of proof, which is actually not true. I mean, everyone knows there's a massive amount of cheating going on among scientists for the simple reason that there are billions and billions and billions of dollars being spent. And it's actually in America, it was declared in Congress to be a sort of a national problem. In fact, when they checked, when they went back independently and checked all the uh, science, the experimental results published in refereed scientific journals, they found up to half of them couldn't be replicated. That's another issue. That's just about human cheating. But the point is, if we radically, if we radically 
devalue human testimony, but science also depends on human testimony. And if you say, well, we do experiments, fine. We have other kinds of experiments. We chant mantras. We engage in acts of bhakti. We do all kinds of things. So we were presented, I mean, the reason we're even involved in bhakti yoga is because we were given a theory or a philosophy. We were given a process to test that philosophy and the test results uh, verified the theory. So it's a metaphysical science, but structurally, not the content, but structurally, it's exactly parallel to what goes on in empirical science. So anyway, uh, these are some of the points I wanted to make. Uh, I think it's very good for those who are trying to explain Bhagavad Gita to have some familiarity with some of the basic points of epistemology. And uh, I, should we, I mean, if there any, are there any questions? Should we take questions now or should I just... Yes, uh, Maharaj, thank you so much. Uh, it's perfect. Actually, we have quite good time, six, seven minutes uh, for questions. Uh, we have, uh, I started seeing questions. So let me read. Uh, so the first question is uh, from Jyotiranjan Prabhu. Uh, can't say things in themselves. So objectively the external world is perpetually inaccessible yeah that was a big that was a big mistake of kant kant was uh yeah i'll tell you why the german is uh uh the the things in themselves and kant that was a major boo-boo for kant for this this simple reason that the world is teleological and, and, and it's, it's teleologically phenomenological. I'll explain what that means. The Greek word telos means purpose or yeah, goal, purpose. And so to say that teleology means, in this case, it's the assertion that there are objective purposes in the world. In other words, you may decide, I wanna to go to university or I want to get married and have a family. So you can create purposes for yourself but they don't exist outside your mind. If you change your mind, then it's not your purpose. Teleology in this, in the sense I'm using it, means that there are objective purposes in the world, whether or not you recognize them. Now, let us, for example, let us for, for the moment assume, for argument's sake, that a personal God created the world and that the world was created as an object of normal human perception. So that, for example, let's say you go to a museum and see a great work of art, a painting. And I ask the simple question, who really understands that painting? Is it a paint chemist or is it an art historian? Because actually the painting is teleological. Obviously, someone had to make the paint. They needed chemists to make the paint. But the point is, the purpose of the painting is to be viewed by a human being with normal human perception. And so therefore, when you see the painting phenomenologically, I mean, as, as an object of normal perception, then you really understand it. So I remember in school, the teacher said something really unintelligent that why is the sky blue? You know, we used to wonder why the sky, now we know. And then there was some silly reference to atmospheric science. 
But the point is, atmospheric science can't tell you why the sky is blue. It tells you how the sky is blue. The questions how and why are completely different. For example, if I ask uh, Ramesh Bhai, if I say, why, you know, why, why are you there? And you say, uh, I drove to this facility. You didn't understand the question. If I said, how are you there? And you said, well, I wanted to you know, uh, moderate a program. So the questions how and why are different. So if it's a fact that God created the world as an object of normal perception, then why is the sky blue? It has nothing, the atmospheric science is, why, is how it's blue. Why? Because God is a supreme artist and he thought it was a really nice color to make the sky. So therefore, now we get back to Kant and Kant's big mistake among, actually quite a number of big mistakes. And that is that, let's say right now, I'm looking at my screen and I'm seeing Ramesh and other things on the screen. So um, if you say, well, you can't see the, the, the computer on Z, you can't see the computer. No, I don't want to see the guts of the computer. That would just give me a headache. What I want to see is Ramesh. I want to see you know, the questions in the chat. The whole computer was made to give me that picture. The computer was, so therefore the objects in themselves have no significance apart from the role they play in projecting a certain visual experience or audible experience. And that's why those things exist. The sky is blue to be seen by an observer. So if you say, what is the sky in itself? Bad question. It's like, if I'm looking at a great work of art and I say, well, what is the painting in itself? No, what you're seeing is what the artist wanted you to see. And therefore the fulfillment of the teleology, satisfying the purpose of the creator, what you see, that's the thing in itself. That's what you're supposed to see. The experience is the thing in itself not the guts behind the experience, which is only interesting to technical people, and I'm just not one of them. So that's why Kant really missed, missed the boat on that one. We can, know, we can know everything we need to know about the things of this world as they are created by God. So there's a comment from Madhumita Das. Brilliant explanation, sir, and I totally agree with uh, Madhumita. Thank you so much for your comment. I think this is perhaps our last question, uh, Maharaj, for you. Uh, this is from Ishani Akshata. Uh, Hare Krishna, uh, thank you for your talk. Very engaging. Am I correct in gathering that? To obtain true knowledge, we have to always rely on empirical data. Also, is it not highly likely that we think some knowledge is self-evident knowledge because we are too blinded by our true opinion? Uh... Okay, what was the first part of the question there? Uh, am I correct in gathering that to obtain true knowledge, we have to always rely on empirical data? No, that's absurd. I mean, for some things, if I have a toothache, I don't want to talk to a Brahmin. I want to talk to a dentist. So, I mean, for if I'm going to, you know, for certain things, we need empirical knowledge, but the dentist or the engineer is not going to tell you what God is. And so again, there we live in a bi-dimensional universe. If you believe there is objectively nothing wrong, let's say with a parent murdering all of his or her children, and there's, there's actually, that's not immoral. There's nothing wrong about that. But who believes that? 
So if there's something objectively wrong, if there is such a thing as equality, if justice really is objectively important, then you live in a bi-dimensional universe in which there are metaphysical truths and there are physical truths. In fact, in India, in America, the empirical truth, which is our inequality, is subordinated to the metaphysical truth, which is that we're all equal. And so, um, no, this, phys this physicalism or philosophical materialism has really seen its day because even in the fields of biology and the fields of you know, neurology, it's becoming obvious that physicalism cannot explain basically most of reality. And so if someone is clinging on to this materialistic philosophy, all I can say is you're like, history is not on your side. It's history is going the other way, even in terms, ac academic terms. Thank you. Thank you so much, Maharaj. Uh, uh, Maharaj, Maharaj, I have a question. Uh, I was also going through the Western philosophical concept. So I see a lot of uh, commonality between the uh, Platonians' uh, idealism and our Sanatan concepts of epistemology. So uh, we would like to listen something about that, probably, Maharaj. Okay, I'll explain quickly. Plato, Bhakta Plato, as I call him, um, he believed in the soul. He believed in reincarnation. He believed there's a God, a personal God, and all that. And so Plato said that, here's a very typical platonic example. Let's say you look at all the triangles that are somehow visible in the world, you know, like they were either constructed or they're rent, written down or printed, just all the triangles. None of those triangles is absolutely perfect in the sense that we know in science that you can get accuracy or precision, you know, up to a, so many places to the right of the decimal point. But at a certain point, science just can't get more precise than that. There, there are fi there, there's finite limits to precision. Yet in your mind, you can imagine a perfect triangle. And similarly, you can, and so what Plato said is there are eternal, there's an eternal realm in which the perfect, the perfect items exist. Perfect bodies, perfect, you know, human bodies, horse bodies, per perfect geometric shapes. And that the object in this world are just an imperfect reflection of the perfect objects, which are eternal. Plato was extremely influential. And then after, you know, centuries after him, there was what is called Neoplatonism, people interpreting Plato. And it's, 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 it's very much in some ways like our philosophy in the sense that there is a perfect world in which, and this world is just an imperfect reflection of that perfect world. So that's, I think, uh, the relevant, one of the relevant parts of Plato. Thank, Thank you, you so much, Maharaj. And uh, I appreciate on behalf of ISS coming. And I know it's late, very late there. Oh, it's uh, only it's uh, eight eighteen p.m. Oh, okay, okay. We, so, can, we can take I think few more questions if questions are there. Um, I see one more question. Uh, there are many, but one one question seems really cute about uh, Sanskrit uh, uh, language. Um, yeah, Hare Krishna, uh, Prabhu, please go ahead. Yeah, yeah. <clears throat> Maras, thank you very much for a nice talk. Oh, thank you. Uh, if, you have a, if you have a video, you can put it on so I can see you. Um, okay. Hare Krishna, Maras. Um, Hare Krishna. <laughs> uh, the point that you made is that 
that there is not an external world because that's our philosophy. Because oh, no, 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 I know. I said what I said was, I mean, I personally believe there is an external world. But my point was that within the empirical system, you can't prove there's an external world. And so if you claim, if a scientist says there's a real world outside my mind, that is not a physical claim. That's a metaphysical claim, technically, in terms of philosophy, because because you're making a claim about the empirical. Uh So, yeah, I mean, of course, there's a world outside our minds. My point is you just cannot prove that within the empirical system because that engages you in circular reasoning. So therefore, everyone, whether you're an empirical scientist or a uh, Hare Krishna hero, you know, whatever you are, you are making metaphysical assumptions. As soon as you say you know something, if you say I know, well, for you, it would be uh, Sunday. It's Sunday for you. So if you say, I know that today is Sunday, that's a metaphysical claim. Because, for example, you can't empirically prove yesterday because it doesn't exist. So so all I'm saying is that when we make our foundational epistemic claims, when we say that we have self-evident experiences of Krishna, of the soul, and so on and so forth, epistemologically we're doing the same thing empirical scientists are but uh, no offense to anyone but i think you know scientists are are notoriously clueless about philosophy because if you're getting a phd in science you don't have to take a class on epistemology in my experience in america going to you know science conferences the famous scientists they're like the deer in the headlights when you talk philosophy they don't know what the hell they're talking about because they've never taken a philosophy course. They're just babbling and saying things. And so, you know, with philosophy, it like evens the playing field because it turns out, no, it's not this false dichotomy that science is based on reason and evidence and words and we just have faith. No, we have, we have also reason. We have also evidence, but it's metaphysical. And since practically every human being is already committed to metaphysical truths, it's hypocritical to say that we cannot build our knowledge system on a metaphysical self-evidential foundation. In other words, it's, it's like if I start talking about, let's say, biology, and the last biology course I took was when I was about 14 years old, and I never took another one because they want us to kill a frog. But anyway, so... So if I start going on and on and on about biology, you know, you better call a biologist. So in the same way, when scientists make fools out of themselves by speaking pseudo-philosophy, it's just embarrassing for them because they don't know what they're talking about. They would, you know, most of them wouldn't know philosophy if they tripped over it. That was my point. <laughs>